You are listening to Pastor Mike Griner of Harvest Community Church in Catanning, Pennsylvania. We pray that you will be challenged today as you listen to his sermon entitled, One Small Man, Part 2, recorded on July 16, 2017. For more information, check us out on the web at harvestpa.org. Let's join Pastor Mike as he preaches. Last week I promised you we'd have a week-long sermon, but I gave you a seven-day break. So I hope you rested up and got your brains ready, because now we're going to start on Part 2. So we're in... Mark's Gospel, chapter 4, if you would turn in your Bible to Mark's Gospel, chapter 4, verse 26 to 32, and we're going to be looking at the second half of that today. And as you're turning, I just want to say I've been so encouraged this week to hear about what's going on at all four campuses with our kids reaching higher. You know, if you, if you want to love children and bring them the Gospel, um, you've got to invest in that. But, uh, you know, even with our huge investment we've always had in that area, you can get stale if you don't stop and say, hey, are we just doing the same thing over and over? Let's reevaluate everything from our facilities to the way we do things to our curriculum. How can we do better? And I was excited to hear that this past spring, all our, all, you guys may not all have known it, but our children's folks, the people who work in children's ministry from all four campuses got together and they thought all this through and prayed and learned. And now we're seeing the fruit of that. And some of you are being asked to volunteer and you're stepping up. And in PVC, you're knocking down walls and you're painting things and you're putting in doors all over the place. We're also going to have a bunch of class, all our classrooms. I saw a bunch of uh, TV holders. Um, <laughs> we want to make it. We thought, you know what, it is the 21st century. We want to make it so our teachers can actually use multimedia easily instead of just driving around this little cart uh, that we have in each church to, to see video. Um, there's going to be uh, video screens in every classroom, and um, it, I'm just excited about it, but what really, really makes me happy is to see the participation of people that I'm hearing about and talking to, um, and I want to thank you guys for doing that, and thank you. I know we're not done, so um, if you, there's still time to jump in if you want to be part of making that happen, um, but I'm not going to talk about that. I'm sure your campus pastors are nagging you sufficiently on that issue, and I also want to thank you because last week I talked to you about uh, the least of these and how we can kind of get together and make a big impact in the South Sudan through Samaritan's Purse, and in just, uh, so, so here's, here's where we are right now. 31 people responded, and we have $2,156. Now, 35 bucks helps a, a family for a week. Um, and you can go to Samaritan's Purse website, and, um, and you can see the kind of things they do in the Sudan. But I just want to say how proud I am um, that, that we're already there. We have two weeks to go. And so I just want to remind you guys that if you would think, how can I... Um, be a little more generous and, and help some people I can't see. It's going to take some imagination. That's why it's good to go to their website and actually read some of the stories. So you get to see I'm helping real people. This isn't just money somewhere. Um, it's not like sending it to UNICEF or something. You're going to be helping real people get the real gospel of Jesus Christ and food. Food comes in really handy if you're hungry. But I just want to applaud the people of Harvest already. We're already over $2,000. We've got two weeks to go. I look forward to seeing what you're going to do. So your Bible should be open by now. That was a lot of stalling. I gave you like seven minutes to open the Bible. It can't take that long. So, um, you know, never despise small beginnings. There's all these sayings. Have you heard these? Uh, the, the, the longest journey begins with a step. And um, from the smallest acorn, the, the mighty oak tree grows. 
Never despise small beginnings. God made himself small for us. God, there's nothing bigger than God. Nothing, no one, nothing. I mean, there's no superlatives. You can't say enough words about how big God is. But he made himself small. He made himself very, very, very small. You know how very, very small we are, right? Um, We are so teensy-tinesy on this earth. We're like little tiny molecules, I mean, in the universe. Uh, the, the, The vastness of the universe is so big. And here we are, and God became a little teensy, tiny human person. He was one man. Now, God is always God, but he also added, he became one man. He came small for us. And he wasn't just small, he was kind of weak. He didn't have an army, didn't have weapons, didn't have a lot of financial influence. He, he made himself an undefended victim of corrupt courts. Corrupt courts are bad enough, but he didn't even get lawyers. You know, he went before Herod, he went before the Sanhedrin, he went before the Romans, and uh, he, didn't even, he didn't even get a lawyer. He didn't even defend himself. And then he allowed himself to get smaller by being beaten and spit upon. So he is small in society and slammed into death on a cross. And he died uh, without social standing in A.D. something, 20-something. Um, just another dead peasant. That's our God. Just another dead peasant. Like many who you've never heard of, who died that same year. Like the thieves next to him. But on the third day, I mean, when he was at his smallest, dead, his most powerless, dead, inside that tomb, he got up. It's it's really wild when you kill folks and they don't stay dead. (laughs) Um, Now, I ain't talking about some kind of Freddy Krueger thing because they didn't really kill him, that's the trick. But he was really dead. And he gets up. I, I, I wonder how that happened. Uh, he can see in the dark. You know, he's got his resurrected body, so he probably isn't in the dark. You know, he's probably, our resurrected bodies probably have like x-ray eyes, man. You can see anything. I don't know. He sits up. He's like, I'm in a tomb. Pushes open the door. <laughs> walked out. At some point after he walked out, he, was, he, was, he saw this woman crying. An old friend of his, he recognized her. Wasn't that old, he just talked to her a few days ago. But it seems like forever to her. And she's crying and crying and looks at him, doesn't even recognize him. Oh, where have they taken my Lord? Where have they taken my Lord? He's like, why are you crying? Because they took my Lord somewhere. Did you take him? He's like, Mary, knock it off. (laughs) She goes, it's you. (laughs) And he said, John... 2017 we have his words he said do not cling to me he didn't mind her hugging him I don't think but that wasn't his point he said don't cling to me for I've not yet ascended there's I have another thing I got to do Mary this was the hard part you've been through it you went through my death you were sad that was the hardest part but I have not yet ascended to the father but for now why don't you go tell my brothers and say to them that I am ascending to my father and your father to my God and your God. And with those words, that little small man began to grow. Every summer we celebrate, as Americans, the 4th of July. And we often forget why we do it, except for, gee, ain't it fun to go outside and light fireworks that you bought illegally your last time you drove through South Carolina. 
but really we're celebrating the birth of our nation. Which, which if you know your history, the 4th of July uh, was not, 1776 wasn't really, it was an unsettled matter at that point. We still had to go through this thing called a war to get to where we needed to go. But that's when we said to King George later, you know, like this to King George as a nation. That's how I teach American history. What happened on the 4th of July? We all got together we're like this to King George. That was when our nation was born. When Jesus walked out of that tomb, your nation was born. When Jesus walked out of that tomb, your nation was born. And it's not, it's the greatest nation that's ever been. And the greatest nation that ever will be. It's an eternal nation. Look what the scripture says of Jesus in Revelation chapter 1. And you don't have to turn there. I've got you in Mark. I haven't forgotten where we are. I'll show you this. Mark, Revelation 1, 5, and 6. Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead, the ruler of the kings on earth, to him who loves us and has freed us from our sins by his blood and made us a kingdom, priest to his God and Father. To him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. I love this description of Jesus. It just, it's revelation. The small man, Jesus of Nazareth, Jesus, Mary's son, Jesus, the carpenter. We're, we're done with that part, okay? Now we're just going to throw off the, the cover and show you who he is. He's the, he's the Christ. That's Messiah. He's the faithful witness. He tells you who God is. He is the firstborn of the dead. I love that phrase. Firstborn from the dead. No one else who ever died got up again in a brand new body that couldn't die and couldn't sin and, and walked around. He's the first one. And he's the ruler of all the kings of the earth. He moves them around even like chess pieces because he is God and he is the risen Savior. And then look at that one phrase. This is a beautiful phrase. Right after such a great introduction, you'd think, stand back, leave him alone. He's got bodyguards. You know, he's too important. If you ever saw an important person come into a room, a president or something, you, he'd have a nice long introduction, hopefully, and then, then they'd bring him in and you couldn't get close to him. And that's, the, I mean, this is the king of all kings. And then what's it say right there? It says, look at this phrase, to him who loves us. And freed us from our sins by his blood. You just can never forget how low Jesus knelt to serve you. How low Jesus had to get to save you. You know, he got down at your feet just like Peter's. And when it came down to whether it was going to be you or him. That's always in life when I choose me, right? And you do the same thing. When it comes down to you or me in a business deal, okay, it's going to be me. When it comes down to you or me, one of us got to live in all the movies. You kill the other guy. When Jesus comes down to, he, got, he, he, he was serving you, and he says, this is going to come down to you or me. One of us is going to have to die for your sins. He said, I'll do it. Why? Because he loved you. It's right there. He who loves us. It's hard to understand that, isn't it? That God could love us like that. It's hard to, to capture that. And he freed us from our sins, but it cost him his own death. This is, we have a very interesting nation. And I'm not talking about the United States. I'm talking about the kingdom of God. 
Because our king rescued every citizen. Generally, in nations, kings depend on the citizens to kind of gather up and get their pointy sticks. And if they have a gun, bring that too. And help the king to fight off the bad guys. He kind of looks for some unity. He says, come on, guys. Together, we can do this. Or, if you've seen the Planet of the Apes, go see it. and You'll know why I did that. But not so with Jesus. Jesus is like, you people ain't going to be able to pull off nothing. Let me handle it. And he saves every citizen. And then what did he do? He made us into a nation. We're so individual. So many of our worship songs, and this does not mean if you enjoy a worship song that's like this, it's hard to comment on things and observe things that we do uh, culturally without people thinking you're, I'm not hating on any worship song. But so many of our worship songs are in the first person singular. Have you ever noticed that? It's always, I'm doing this and I'm doing that. And there's nothing wrong with that. I mean, there are psalms like that. You know, you, you, you're only one person. But do we sometimes forget that we're a collective? Um, we are a group. We are a family. We are a nation. The verse I just read you, did you catch it? He said he loved you and freed you from your sins. We could end that. Good news there. But look what it said right after that. And made us a kingdom. It brought us together. He made us priests to his father and his God and father. And for that, to him be the glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Cue the angels. A summary statement. You're saying, isn't this a long introduction? No. Remember, this is a two-part sermon. This would have been the middle section of the sermon. <laughs> okay. So the summary statement comes right here. Jesus has made us a kingdom. We are a nation. Our nation is the largest in all the history of the world because it includes everyone who has ever had faith in God from the time of Adam till the present and until he returns. And not a single citizen of this kingdom has been lost to death or war. Because anyone who believes in Christ has overcome those things. Today's text from Mark, we had two related parables, and they go so together, I'd hate to separate them, just because I can't fit them all in one sermon. Last week we saw that God's purpose for all of human history was to create a harvest for himself. He desires that all would be saved, but not all will be saved, not all will come to Christ so for some there's a punishment but then his second parable is really about the growth of that kingdom and let's look at that now starting in verse 30 of Mark 4 he said with what can we compare the kingdom of God what parable shall we use for I love that question it's rhetorical Right? It's rhetorical. There's probably, you know, I'm such a smart aleck. So there's some of you, if any of you were a smart aleck in school, maybe you're in school now and you are a smart aleck, and you can't help thinking of smart aleck things to say, and people call you smart aleck, but, or they call you smart and something else that starts with an A, I want you to know that God's probably calling you to be a preacher. <laughs> so you're going to get in a lot of trouble if you don't learn to shut up. But eventually that's going to come in in handy i you know if i'm in the so to what can we compare to the kingdom of god i'm up there a kumquat you know he's like 
The apostles were like, get this guy out of the front row. But I'd be a smart aleck because as I was thinking about this, I thought, we don't know. We have no idea. He asked that rhetorically. Because the kingdom of God is introduced by him. When he came, he declared the kingdom is here. We're like, what? What is that? He gave that long sermon on the mount, which is really the way people behave, kingdom people are supposed to behave, right? Here's how my citizens behave. We turn the other cheek. We do this. We do that. We rejoice in suffering. So he asked this question that no one in the audience could have an answer to. What, what do we compare the kingdom of God to? So the answer's got to be good because he's about to tell us what this kingdom is like and none of us know except him. And he says it's like a grain of mustard seed, which when sown in the ground is the smallest of all the seeds of the earth, not any seed that exists. He's talking, here it is, he's saying, to what, what when you ask, how do you describe the, a kingdom? Kingdoms normally involve land, and people, and armies, and wealth, and natural resources, and, and, and constitutions, and whatever it takes to put into a kingdom. When he says, how can we describe a kingdom? He says, well, let's think of an herb garden. An herb garden. And that's where he's going with this. It's like a mustard seed. You throw it in the ground. It's small of all those seeds. And yet, when it is sown in the ground, when it's sown, it grows up. And becomes larger than all the garden plants. It puts out large branches. So that the birds of the air can make nests in its shade. This caused me to have to figure out more about mustard. Mustard plants have a great variety. Some of them grow into trees. And some of them just get 10 or 12 feet tall bushes. But definitely, if you put one in your herb garden, you got to watch out. It could take over. Especially in an arid climate where they're more likely to become tree-like. Watch out, basil. <laughs> look out, parsley. You're about to, when we started out, you were a little bigger, but now look, it's taking over the whole garden. Here comes the mustard. When you, when you plant that seed, it didn't look too threatening. And then you got, got the parsley over here and the thyme over there and sage and the rosemary just so you can have the whole song in there and there are old timers in here. There's this little mustard seed. And Jesus says, that's what we can compare the kingdom of God to. What's he saying? He's saying, here is Jesus, a 33-year-old man of very little means, never raised an army, wouldn't even have a militia, wouldn't even join a militia. You know, he didn't even join the NRA and get the sticker on his truck. Nothing. No political power, no political movement. He didn't even go for politics. They had one knife between them. And the one guy wanted their dudes use it. He said, knock that off. Quit cutting people. He didn't write books or manifestos. He didn't look that impressive. He is the mustard seed. He was planted both literally and figuratively, if you will. Literally, he died figuratively. Once he brought his life, the display of his life and his teachings into the world, it was planted in human history. And it is going to overtake the entire earth. 
throughout history. The, the kingdom of God becomes greater than all the other nations. Right here in AD 20-something, when he's standing there, it doesn't look that impressive. The Romans are not threatened at this moment. Not much seemed to have changed. In fact, when Rome got a hold of him, he stood before the Roman governor Pilate, who seems like a big deal to us because he's a big deal in our Bible, but he was a little deal in Rome because this outpost out on the desert on the Mediterranean Sea is a long way from Italy. <laughs> and so you almost wonder who he ticked off to have to have to be the governor out there. And this little man stands before him and Pilate's wife has a dream, don't hurt this man or whatever. He's like, look, uh, are you a king? Uh, where's your kingdom? He said, my kingdom's not of this world. If it were, my people would fight. Well, that, that's not threatening. I mean, if every, if every rebellion said, hey, listen, we're not going to fight, I think governments wouldn't worry about them. He, he, he rose up from the grave and he sent his followers out to the world, but he didn't do it with guns. And he didn't do it saying, take borders. He didn't do it saying, take land. He said, I want you to go out as... Let's call it sheep in the midst of wolves. That's not very threatening. That is not very threatening. Right? It's, it's <laughs> if you're coming up with names for your sports team and you could be either the sheep or the wolves, pick wolves. I mean, they're pretty, these people he sends out turned out to be pretty easy to arrest. And it wasn't hard to oppress them. Lions like the taste of them. You could imprison them, imprison them very easily. They weren't hard to kill. Yet, in 410, 400 years later, the Visigoths, whoever they are, this is from our history class, <laughs> sacked Rome, the great empire, which hadn't, no one had messed with Rome in what? five centuries or so? And the Roman Empire shortly after fell, but the kingdom of the peasant king had spread all over it. And when Rome fell, Jesus didn't. This kingdom of the peasant king was unstoppable because it's resilient and it also is relentless. The, its own people can sometimes be its biggest problem. But it doesn't stop moving. It keeps on being carried on. Some people even made war in the name of Jesus, which is not kingdom of God stuff to do. But the kingdom still spread, not by those people, but by spreading love, the word of God, person to person, a simple message. Sometimes by conquering. Around 1,100 A.D., the Vikings, <laughs> the, showing the prowess of the, of the whitest, blonde-haired people on the planet, those, all those Scandinavians up there, decided they were tired of being cold and not having land to farm, and they all went down to England and France and just started taking their stuff. Now, of course, we don't mind when they did it in France, 
<laughs> Normandy is, 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 Normandy shows French were already, Normandy is Viking land. You know that, right? That's why it's called Normandy, Northmandy. It's, they, French couldn't get rid of them. Say, well, why don't you just take this whole area? Like, okay. What happened? They, they would go to England and raid all the monasteries. And what happened? Well, they started hearing the message of another kingdom. And, uh, you know, Oli and Jan and Ya and all these, you know, names. They, they, they gave up Odin. He wasn't that impressive anyway. And then they went back to Switzerland and Norway. And, and those became Christian. One way to Christianize a nation is let them beat you up and take your stuff. <laughs> but it's an unstoppable kingdom. Many mistakes, but it's so resilient. The, the, the history of, of man is the history of the church. Just follow it around the world, generation to generation, nation to nation, even today. The biggest movement, the biggest organization in the world is the Church of Jesus Christ. Don't let anyone scare you saying Muslims are having more babies or whatever. Muslims are all divided. They all kill each other as much as they kill anybody else. And they, <laughs> and they only grow by that, force or that. South America is on fire with the gospel. I hear about people being missionaries to Brazil. You don't really need to be a missionary to Brazil. You can be a Christian worker in Brazil, but Brazil now, now because of revival in the last, I don't know, 20, 30 years, has as many percentage-wise Christians as we do. I guess you could be a missionary. It's like being a missionary to Georgia. They don't really need you. Now, they might use you as a Christian worker. They don't, definitely don't need you in South Korea. They definitely don't need you in South Africa. They do need you in the Sudan because people are shooting at folks. <laughs> and who wants to go there? They could use you in North Africa. Could use you in India. I guarantee you, save India, we're done. China's crawling with Christians. These are your fellow citizens, folks, throughout the ages. And all our citizens never die. We are in the recruiting stage of history. What, are, what is God doing? He's recruiting citizens from among his enemies, by the way. From among those who hate him. He has a cool way of saving people. People say, I hate you, I curse you, I blaspheme you, I do what I want to do. And he says, I love you. And they go, I'm sorry. It's really an interesting way to overwhelm someone. That's how he does it. That's how he did it with you, isn't it? He could have just squished you for all your sins. Instead, at some point, you came to the realization that he actually loves you and died for your sins, and he took care of them, and so you said, I'm sorry. And we're recruiting citizens. <laughs> and, and, and let me show you something in Isaiah. This goes way back, 600 years before Jesus, 700 years before Jesus. So this is a very old prophecy. It's the last chapter of Isaiah, and it's about the end of all things. And it talks about the time we live in. By the time, I mean from A.D. like 30 until now, till he comes back. It says, for, God says, for I know their works and their thoughts. This is out of context. Don't worry about understanding the whole thing. I want to... You'll see the part we're looking for. 
For I know their works and their thoughts, and the time is coming to gather all nations and tongues. And they shall come together and see my glory. And I will set a sign among them. I think that's the gospel. Or Christ himself. And from them I will send survivors to the nations. To Tarshish, Pole, Lud. I don't know where those places are. Who draw them up to Tubal and Javan. I don't know where they are. It doesn't matter. You could put in other names. <laughs> to the coastlands far away. This is, this is the way of saying, as far as other nations are from Jerusalem, I'm sending people. That have not heard my fame or seen my glory and they shall declare my glory among the nations. Seven centuries before Jesus, the plan was always to send Christian missionaries to every nation. That's, this is the time we live in right now. That is our time. It's right there in the Bible. And in fact, since we're not Israel, we ain't Jews. It's kind of cool. They've reached us. And now we join in and reach others. Because you can't reach a nation just once. Why? Every hundred years, all new people. You got to start over. We, Harvest, want to declare his glory in western Pennsylvania. We want you to live and die to his glory. We had this song, um, Is Well With My Soul. Right, And then we're using the modern version, which has a new verse when it says, for you I live. And then it says, for you I, what's the next word? Dwell. I want to change that word dwell to die. Because dwell, live and dwell, same thing. Paul says, whether I live, I live for the glory of God. Or if I die, I die for the glory of God. We live and die for his glory. Right here in western Pennsylvania. Uh, I can't change the word. I'm not a songwriter and But then we declare his glory among the nations. We're fulfilling that. What an honor. And in whose name do we do that? What right do you have? We are citizens of the only kingdom that's going to last. We are leaves on the mustard tree. And we're taking basil and we're kicking its butt. Coriander, watch out. This is our time. Let's, Let's write a summary statement so Pastor Mike can move on. What started small... As one small man, one mustard seed buried in the ground will come and take over the earth. I got to show you something. (laughs) I got to show you something. This is so cool. It's so cool because God revealed this plan way back. He just hid it. He hid all these things in the Old Testament. The Old Testament is filled with hidden prophecies that are revealed in the New Testament. In other words, our understanding comes through Christ. Let's go back 600 years before Christ to Daniel. Remember him? He's the cool one, gets fed to lions, they don't eat him. His boys get thrown in fire, they don't burn. You know, that's a really fun book. Well, early on in Daniel, he was serving uh, Nebuchadnezzar, who, who, who looks really nasty in movies like that 300 movie, you know, the Persian king, you know. Um, the Persians, bad, tough. Well, no, actually, he was Babylonian, excuse me, before the Persians. He ran the whole world, and he had a bad dream. He woke up from his bad dream. He called all the wise men that he had stolen from other nations when he took them over. He says, I'll take your religious smart people. I'll take your religious smart people. I'll take your religious smart people. He brought the smartest ones in, and that did not include Daniel. He didn't know him well yet. And he said, I had a dream, and I'm troubled. 
you guys tell me the interpretation of the dream and tell me the dream or I'm going to rip you apart physically. And they said, sure, just tell us the dream. He says, I'm not telling you the dream. And they said, no one can tell you if you won't tell the dream. He says, I knew you are a bunch of liars. And he set out an order, rip apart every wise man I stole from every nation. Kill them all. Daniel gets wind of it. He's like, he goes to the head of the guard and says, could we put a time out on that kill us all thing? He wants with his boys and he prays and he says, I, I want to talk to Nebi, Nebuchadnezzar. He says, Neb, <laughs> big N. He says, I can't tell you your dream either. But God can. And he did. So sit down. See, the dream he had, he was troubled because he didn't know what it meant. But God put a feeling on it. You ever wake up with a feeling from a dream that you don't like? <laughs> and it won't go away. You're like, sometimes it lasts past lunchtime. Well, this one was bad because he was just troubled. And in his dream, he saw this huge gold-headed man. It was a big old statue or something. Very tall, and it had a gold head, and then it had arms made of silver, and a chest made of silver, and its trunk was made of bronze. Its legs were made of iron, and the feet were clay. Mixed up with iron. And as he was looking, this stone comes down from heaven that no human hand made. A stone, a rock. Hits the thing in the foot and crushes the whole thing. Just hits it in the foot. Boom. Then the stone laying there grows and grows and grows until it's a great mountain and becomes a kingdom that never ends. <laughs> He's like, man, this is trouble. What does this mean? Dave said, or, or Daniel says, Danny, we like to call him, said this. And I'm going to read it from the scripture. And I, and, I, and I hope you'll see the mustard seed growing here. He says, to you, O king, the king of kings. Remember this, 600 years before Jesus. Keep your timeline, your historical hat on here. Follow this. King, the king of kings. He's calling Nebi the king of kings because he took over a lot of kings. He's not calling them like Jesus. To whom the God of heaven has given the kingdom. Everyone who's in power, God gives them power. And he takes it away too. And he doesn't give it to the deserving. He just gives it to whoever he will. The God of heaven has given the kingdom, the power, and the might, and the glory, and into whose hands he has given, wherever they dwell, the children of man, the beasts of the field, the birds of the heaven, making you rule over them. You, my friend, are the head of gold. Nebby's feeling really good. I'm the head of gold. <laughs> Big gold head dude. I'm gold head. Verse 39, and another kingdom inferior to you shall arise at, that's got to be flattering to him, another kingdom, but it's inferior to me, will rise after you. It's after he's dead. And, and, and that's the, the silver, right? Okay. He's Babylonian. The silver is going to be the Medes and the Persians. These are your Iranians. <laughs> All right? They're going to come and they're going to whack one of his, his uh, what do you call that, a predecessor if they come after? Or whatever you call them, no, the, the aftercessor. Um, they're going to whack them and they're going to take over the kingdom. And yet a third kingdom of bronze... Um, that's going to be Alexander the Great and the Greeks. They're going to shoot in fast, take over as much of the world as they can, which shall rule over all the earth. And then there shall be a fourth kingdom, strong as iron, because iron breaks the pieces and shatters all things. And like iron that crushes, it shall break and crush all these. 
and the Romans did. There's never been a man-based empire on this planet that has been as fierce or as successful at ruling as many of the people of the planet as the Roman Empire, ever. They're brutal, they're mean, they're fierce, and they lasted centuries. Most of the people in the world lived around the Mediterranean Sea and they owned it. They got all the way up into to Britain. <laughs> they took over North Africa. They had it all for centuries. Like iron that crushes, it shall break and crush all these. And as you saw the feet and toes, partly of potter's clay and partly of iron, it shall be a divided kingdom. As time went on, the Romans had trouble sticking together, apparently. And some of the firmness of the iron shall be in it, just as you saw iron mixed with soft clay. And as the toes of the feet were partly iron and partly clay, so the kingdom shall be partly strong and partly brittle. You can see the Roman Empire getting older. But look at this. As you saw the iron mixed with soft clay, so they will mix with one another in marriage, but they will not hold together just as iron doesn't mix with clay. And in the days of those kings, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom. And he's not one of the, he's not gold, silver, bronze, iron, or clay, is he? What is he? (laughs) The God of heaven sets up a kingdom. Jesus would walk on the planet 600 years later and goes, the time has come. The kingdom of God is here. It's the same thing being prophesied right there. He will set up a kingdom that shall never be destroyed. There's people trying to whack us now. Legally, by embarrassing you, by trolling you on on Facebook, (laughs) telling you how stupid you are for believing in the Bible. You can't destroy this kingdom. Nor shall the kingdom be left to another people. Normally kingdoms, you, if you lead it, you die and someone else gets it. Right? Like if the founding fathers knew we were going to get it, they would have might have said, we're not going to die. We're just going to keep it. You guys are going to mess this up. Just kidding. Well, maybe not. But he says, with this kingdom, how can you have a kingdom that you don't die and leave to other people? It's simple. You have a kingdom that won't die. It shall break into pieces all these other kingdoms and bring them to an end. And it shall stand forever. Just as you saw that a stone was cut from a mountain by no human hand. Who is a stone that was made by no human hand? Mary, blessed art thou among women. So the Holy Spirit shall come upon you and you shall be with child. Behold, I bring you tidings of great joy. In the city of David, this day was born unto you a Savior. His name is Christ the Lord. God, the Holy Spirit, put Jesus in Mary. And that it broke in pieces the iron, the bronze, the clay, the silver, and the gold. The whole picture there is when our king comes, he destroys the authorities of all nations. But he starts small. He's just a stone. In the dream, the stone grew into a mighty mountain. That took a little time. And it was a kingdom that never ended. That's this. That's, you could start this out saying, well, to what should we compare the kingdom of God? The stone and the mountain that hit the big statue. Jesus Christ has infiltrated every nation. And he's going to keep doing it. You are his subversive element. <laughs> you are the, his agents. 
And you're here to declare to the world this truth. The king has come. The king is coming again. And when he does, he's not going to do any nonsense. So you need to be forgiven by him. You need to receive the forgiveness of sins he brings or you will be punished for your wickedness. And there's not going to be a lawyer, a court, a king, or religion you can run to that will protect you because he's Lord over all. 1 Corinthians 15 shows us this. For as in Adam all die. Everyone Adam made croaks. So also in Christ shall all be made alive. That's all who believe in Jesus will have eternal life. Jesus said in John 11, He who believes in me, though he were dead, yet shall he live. And he who lives and believes in me shall never die. So if you believe in Christ, I want you to know you're never going to die. You might say, you just said we have to die to the glory of God. Well, to outsiders it looks like you died. But you won't know what that's like. You'll go from life to life. You'll be like, oh man, I kind of had a headache. Now I feel great. Can I, ask, can I stop? It's not even my notes and ask, if this is true, why do we make everything else that's so stupid so important in our lives? If this is true, well, let me finish this. He says, but each in his own order. Christ the first fruits. This doesn't all happen at once. Jesus, firstborn of the dead. He's first. Then at his coming, those who belong to Christ. Well, he hasn't come back, so I don't get my new body yet. If I die now, my spirit will be with God, but my body will be in the dirt. Then comes the end when he delivers the kingdom of God to the Father after destroying every rule, every authority, and every power. And it's not a new idea. I could give it to you from all over the scripture. Go home and read Psalm 2, written a thousand years before Jesus. And you'll see the same thing. You are a member of a kingdom that cannot end. You are not in the minority, you are in the majority. And you cannot lose. Well, how should we live in light of these things? One, worship and rejoice if you are a citizen in the eternal kingdom. No matter how many sorrows in this world, sorrow is not proof that God doesn't love you. Sorrow is proof that you live in this sorry world in this sorry body. That's all. It's going to come to you. It comes to non-believers. They get cancer, you get cancer. They get hit by cars, you get hit by cars. Their children die, your children die. It stinks. It's a place of sorrow as well as some good things. But it doesn't matter. You can worship God because you're a citizen of the eternal kingdom. First Peter said this to suffering Christians, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. How many Christians go to bedsides of other Christians, pray for them to be healed, and set all their hopes on what the doctor does? Set all their hopes on how that person's going to feel better in a few weeks. Don't worry, maybe this will work. Don't worry, maybe that will work. If you're at that bed... <laughs> Yeah, we, we want to live. Wanting to live is given to us from God. But don't set your hope on that. Set your hope on the glory that is to be revealed to you when Jesus shows up. Because then you won't be sick. And doctors will be out of work, but they won't care because they won't be hungry. Two, beware falling into the sin that you've been saved from. Grace is not an excuse to sin. It is an enabler to live holy. Remain unstained from the wicked things God hates and had to die to save you from. Walk in integrity and imitate God. First Thessalonians, we exhorted each one of you and encouraged you and charged you to walk in a manner worthy of God who calls you where? 
Where does he call you? Is it, on, is it behind my back at your campus? Is it on the wall? Where does he call you? Into his own what? Into his own what? Come on. Into his own what? Because you're a citizen of his kingdom and his glory, therefore, walk here with integrity. Show that you're a citizen of there. Third, remember that you have the power to give life away. You, my friends, have more power than armies and atom bombs. All they can do is destroy. You can actually give the gospel, the good news that Jesus Christ dies for sinners. And their dead soul can raise the dead. I don't care. No nation on earth can raise a dead soul. But you can. Just by bringing the gospel. Whoever believes in me, the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. The water isn't just to quench your thirst. Rivers that flow out of you, who are they for? You have the power to bring. You can recruit citizens. And they'll get saved. Four, see your fellow church members as fellow citizens of heaven. Treat every fellow church member with all the dignity and respect that you would say for someone who you knew was really the leader of your nation undercover. The CEO of your company undercover. Because one day, the person next to you is going to shine like the sun. Be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving. As Christ did you. Five, don't be afraid to give up this world's pleasures and treasures to declare the glory of God to the nations. That's why we're doing this T-Lot thing. We're trying to, in a small way, get us in the habit of thinking, I can give up the pleasures and treasures of this world and glorify God in the nations. We have nothing to lose. You can go to another nation and die for the gospel and lose nothing. I'm not saying it won't be sad. I'm not saying it won't hurt. I'm not saying there won't be sorrows. But I'm saying you lose nothing. Listen, my beloved brothers. Has not God chosen those who are poor in the world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom? Which he promised to you? Don't be afraid to risk what you have. And finally, never quit. Never give up. Never stop believing. And never stop hoping. The Lord will rescue me from every evil deed and bring me safely into his heavenly kingdom. To him be glory forever and ever. Amen. If Paul can say it, you can say it. Thank you for listening to this sermon from Harvest Community Church. We invite you to join us at any one of our four campuses located in Catanning, Petrolia Valley, Indiana, and Freeport. For more information, check us out on the web at harvestpa.org.